Welcome again. We are in Acts, Acts 23 and 24 is we're going to look at today. So if you want to turn there with us, uh, it is on page 644, the Bible in front of you. Acts is the story of the church's birth and movement forward. It's how the church really got started in the early parts of Acts, and it is uh, how it, the nuts and bolts story of where these churches got planted and who some of the major players that God put in place to get the church going. And so the story of the book of Acts is where we've been camped out for a while now. And the reason that we've done that is just to see uh, the, the game plan, the original schematic, if you will, the original blueprints to how God wanted a church to function. What, what were the things that were most important at the front end of this? When something gets started, that's whenever you see something, right? You know, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who was looking to buy a building this past week, and he said, the building looks great from what I can see. The thing that terrifies me about this building is what I can't see. And, uh, and, and so it's, uh, it's, isn't that how it goes, Right. Like if you're there from the beginning of something, you can see it built, you can see how it was built, uh, but a good finished carpenter can cover up a whole lot of errors, can't he? Uh, just ask my dad. Anything that he's covered up in our house is uh, growing up. But uh, that's what's beautiful about the story of Acts is you get to see the blueprint, you get to see the, the excavation, you get to see the footers poured, you get to see the whole thing built from the ground up exactly how God designed it to be. And then throughout the rest of Acts, you see instruction being given to these churches that are planted throughout Asia and, uh, and, and parts of the Middle East and even out into Europe. You see instructions, specific instructions on how to keep it going the direction God desires it to go. And that's important. Because we are people and we tend to veer, we tend to shape things how we think makes sense to us and we're idea factories, we come up with all kinds of ideas. But what God's saying is that's great, I've gifted you with brains and minds and, and giftedness and abilities and, and you can take things and do amazing things, but as far as it pertains to the church and the gospel moving forward, use those ideas through the lens of this. That's the story of the book of Acts. That's why we have it. So we've been going through this systematically and chapter by chapter for some time now. And last week what we saw was Paul in some trouble with the Jewish leaders, again, who have caught up with him. And, and he's not really caught up with them. He goes onto their turf. He heads back into Jerusalem. And uh, they've been trying to silence him since the, since the beginning of his ministry. So he gets put on trial and he shares his testimony with the people that are there. That's what we saw last week. And today we're going to see someone who misses out on the most valuable thing he could possibly ever have because he's more focused on the things this world could give him. This guy's name is Felix. He's the governor of Caesarea. And that's the city that Paul was about to be sent to for his next trial. But before we get to that... Uh, let's catch back up with Paul. Let's find out what happened after the Roman commander in Jerusalem found out about the plot to ambush and kill Paul. That's where we pick up today. If you want to turn with me, again, it's on 644, chapter 23. And uh, we're going to start at verse 23 of that chapter, if you'll follow along with me. <clears throat> we're going to read 23 through 35. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death 
or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's, in Herod's praetorium. You imagine this scenario playing out? Just picture it. Paul is almost, yet again, torn to pieces by an angry mob. And he stands trial in front of the Sanhedrin. And, the Roman, and so the Roman guard takes him back into the prison for his own protection. Because these people are, are becoming a riotous group and they want to kill him. Paul's nephew just so happens to overhear the plot to kill Paul. They're going to ambush him. And so he tells the Roman commander this. Then the Roman commander arranges a, a small ensemble to move Paul. You know, just 470 soldiers, 200 of them carrying heavy spears and 200 of them being infantrymen and the remaining ones on horses to personally escort Paul by night to Caesarea. Third hour of the night, by the way, would have been midnight on our time, just how they arranged their clock at that time. So at midnight, they do it under cover of darkness. You think God was involved in all of that? You think God had something to do with Paul's protection in all of this? So God, how awesome of him that Paul gets not just safely delivered, but he gets a literal army to escort and protect him on his way to his next stop. So no doubt, Paul was able to look back to this encouraging words uh, in verse 11. If you go back there with me, uh, in verse 11, it says, uh, let me make sure I... In, in 22, it says, And I said, What shall I do, Lord? Whenever he's, whenever he's sharing his testimony, he says, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be all that is appointed for you to do. And says, I could not see because of the brightness. He gets this command from Jesus. He meets Jesus. Jesus tells him his message, tells him what he's supposed to do. And then again, here we have in, verse, in chapter 23, verse 11, it says, the following night, the Lord stood by him. Jesus, again, stands with Paul, again, and says, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So all Paul knows is that Jesus personally gave him a, 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 a job to do in his, in his initial meeting with Jesus. And here we have again where he's, he's in dire straits. He knows that the mob wants to put him under. And he knows that he has this mission from God. He knows that at any time he could be killed for this message. And this angry mob is breathing down his neck. And Jesus shows up yet again in Paul's life. Physically, Jesus shows up in Paul's story and looks and stood by him. And he says, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And what Paul knows in that moment is no matter how angry these people are and how bad they want to kill him, Jesus has ordained for Paul to share the gospel in Rome, which means he cannot get killed in Jerusalem unless Jesus plans on resurrecting him. So Paul is emboldened with faith, but how cool would that be for him to, to sit and wonder, how is God going to do this? How, how is God? God has gotten me out of so many sticky situations already, miraculously done it. How, how is he going to do it this time? I can almost see Paul almost excited about how God's going to do it. And all of a sudden, Paul gets escorted out at midnight to an army of Roman soldiers in full regalia marching him to the next stop, getting him yet closer to Rome. This time, God shows up in, in very satisfying and, 
and cool ways to almost prove to the Jewish leaders of the day that are trying to squash the gospel yet again. Which, by the way, the high priest at the time, his name is Ananias. He's an evil man. He's not well-liked. And, and shortly after, about eight years after Paul is uh, imprisoned and eventually executed, and Ananias is actually assassinated by fellow Jews who uh, are looking for a way to undermine the high priest. And so uh, for a high priest to be assassinated, it doesn't seem like he was very well-liked amongst his own people. And this is the one that is bringing the charges against Paul. So Paul now is on his way to his next stop in Caesarea, and he's awaiting his next trial. And uh, that's, that's where we pick up the story. Paul is in Caesarea. He's waiting for his next trial. And the first thing we read about in chapter 24 is this Sanhedrin has lawyered up. They have a lawyer named Tertullius and his argument against Paul. And, uh, and this is how it goes. So follow along with me. Chapter 24. We're going to look at the first nine verses. And after five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and spokesmen, one Tertullus. Now, let me stop there for a second. When it says Ananias came back, it means that when Ananias is aware to the fact that his prisoner that he was hoping to get murdered and kill uh, to shut him up is gone, he has to figure out a new plan. And that plan gets kind of foiled whenever he gets word that the Roman government is, is expressing that he must come and bring his charges against Paul to Roman authorities now. This, very, this has gotten very complicated for Ananias. And so what does a fearful man, whenever he wants to still be right, even though he's very wrong, do? In this situation, he gets a sleazy attorney. So... Halfway through verse 1, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and in everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So, after Tertullus spends a sickening amount of time buttering up Felix, which, by the way, everything he says to Felix in that passage is a complete lie. Felix is known throughout history. His, his History will tell us that Felix was one of the most ineffective and corrupt governors in Roman history. The land did not have peace. When he starts off in, in halfway through verse 2 there, since through you we enjoy much peace, that's a total lie. It is in complete complete calamity, even at that moment, and it only gets worse. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, Felix was known to not make any major decisions under his governorship. Everywhere we accept with, and, and in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. There were several movements to overthrow Felix because the people hated him. But to detain you no further, because you're such a busy man, I beg you to very quickly hear what we have to say. So after he butters him up, and like I said, he is found to be one of the most corrupt and ineffective leaders in Roman history. Felix is. Tertullus gets to his charges against Paul. In verses 5 through 9, we see what his charges are against Paul. And he accuses Paul basically in three different ways. He accuses him personally. So the first thing that Tertullus says that they have found Paul to be is a troublemaker, that he stirs up trouble, that he stirs up riots wherever he goes. And this is going to get Felix's attention because one of the main things that he's tasked to do as a governor of, an, of, a, of a province, sort of like Pontius Pilate, if I could take you back to the moment that Jesus is on trial and he ends up before a Roman authority, do you know why that got Pilate's attention? 
because he was told by Caesar that there cannot be any insurrection amongst the Jewish people or I will come down hard on them and it will be your fault. That's what Pilate is told. So Pilate is trying to do whatever he can to keep the peace when Jesus is on trial. So you can read between the lines in the story of Jesus' trial with Pilate and see that Pilate most likely doesn't believe that Jesus is guilty of anything and is hoping that this gentle, kind man is going to get the benefit of the doubt from the people over the ugliness of Barabbas. So Pilate picks the ugliest crimes, heinous criminal that he has in his prison and puts him before the, Roman, the, the Jewish people. And he says, one of these men will be released to you. You have a custom that I do that this time of year. So I will give to you Jesus who has done nothing wrong. Or I will give to you Barabbas who is one of the worst criminals sitting in our prison. And they release Jesus. Now, why did I tell you that? Because this is going to catch Felix's attention. Because the same rules apply to him. If an insurrection happens on his watch, Caesar is going to hold him directly responsible for it. So, Tortullus knows this, and he uses it at his advantage to say that riots are being stirred up because of this man. Insurrections are being stirred up because of this man. And he, his job was to ensure that there were no riots, no uprisings. He needed to ensure peace through the definition of how Caesar, the emperor, defined peace. The second thing Tartullus does is he accuses Paul of, uh, he, he attacks him in the political sense. He says that he's the ringleader of the Nazarene sect, is what he says. Now, this is a more serious charge because no Roman official wanted to be guilty of allowing illegal activities that would upset Roman peace or Pax Romana. Roman peace was the reason that these governors were put in place in the first place. So Tortullus knows he's very wise about what he's very cunning, I should say. Not so much wise, but he's cunning. And he knows why Felix's job is there, and he also knows Felix's insecurities, and he plays them in all of Paul's charges. And then he accuses them of his doctrine. Tortullus says that Paul tried to desecrate the temple. Now, this wouldn't necessarily have been something Felix cared all about, other than uh, it brought it up. Tortullus brought it up so that he could explain that if the Roman commander, Lysias, wouldn't have interfered in this process, they would have already taken care of Paul themselves. And so he points to this as saying, the reason we were having our charges down in Jerusalem brought to him, if, if Lysias wouldn't have interfered and got the army to escort him to you, you wouldn't have to deal with this anyway. We'd have taken care of it in Jerusalem. That's why he brings that up, because the doctrine side of things doesn't really matter to Felix, and we're going to see that in a little bit when we look more at the person Felix. So after the Sanhedrin takes the stand and they're given their accusation, it's Paul's turn to give his defense. So Paul finally gets a chance to speak against these charges, and that's where we pick up Acts 24 at verse 10 through 21. So follow along with me. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not, not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. 
So Paul refutes their accusation is what he does. And he does it pretty thoroughly. Uh, so when they give the personal charge to Paul, Paul comes back at them because they're saying he's a troublemaker who stirs up riots. And Paul explains in verse 11 through 13 that he had witnesses in both Jerusalem and in Caesarea that could give witness to where he had been and what he was doing every day. I have witnesses in the 12 days that I was there or here. I have witnesses that can tell you everything I was doing. He was in Jerusalem for seven days, and the whole time he was there, he was in the temple with other people taking part in a purification ritual. And since then, he had been in Caesarea in Felix's care for five days. So this, this really firmly proved that he couldn't have been causing trouble or starting riots. He had witnesses that could account for where he was for, and for what he was doing every day. So on the other hand, his accusers couldn't prove their charges at all. So next he responds to the political charges that he was part of this group of people that wanted to cause discord and, and cause problems in the empire. Paul tells us in verse 14 that he worshipped God and he was a follower of the way, capital W, way. Remember Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when Paul refers to that, it's the way. It's not just... The, the way that he's going, it's, it's, it defines, it encompasses everything. When Paul says the way, just so you know, it is an all-encompassing phrase that he's following Jesus, but he's also following the way Jesus lived and the way Jesus has commanded him to live. That's going to come into play at the tail end of what we talk about here. There is a lordship thing here where Paul knows who he belongs to and who he serves. So that word, the way, is not just a person. It is a philosophy and a direction and a drive behind Paul's life. It's the person of Jesus. It's also the direction of Jesus all wrapped up into that, which verse 22 uh, tells us Felix was very familiar with. We'll get into that. He goes on to tell us that he believed everything that agreed with the law and the prophets. And then he says, that he's, in verse 15, that he has the same hope in God that his accusers have. That there would be a resurrection of all people. That his Jewish accusers couldn't argue this because the Old Testament very clearly teaches about it. For example, in Isaiah 26, verse 19. It says this, but your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. In Job, one of the oldest and, and uh, longest books in the Bible as far as how long we've had record of it. It's one of the first books written. It says this in Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed yet in my flesh I will see God. In Daniel chapter 12, it says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And what Paul's doing when he says this, he's not quoting these scriptures, by the way. I'm, I'm pointing you to that to, to make the point that when Paul is making this claim, whenever he's defending himself here, he's not just necessarily defending himself. He's just saying that these people who are accusing me of uh, political insurrectionists, I'm not really doing that. I'm just saying that I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And if they really believe what they say they believe, they believe the same thing I do. And I can prove it to you because it's riddled throughout the Old Testament books that these men have memorized. He's explaining the fact that, he's now, that he was now a, a Christian. It didn't mean that he worshipped in a different... He didn't worship a different God from the God of his fathers. It only meant that he worshipped God in a new and living and active way. His faith is still founded upon the Old Testament scriptures, and they, in fact, give witness to Jesus. So all he's saying is that his accusers don't understand the passages, don't understand the law that they so richly want to defend. And the last thing that Paul does is he defends himself against this, this charge of his doctrine that he tried to desecrate the temple. In verse 17, he tells us the whole reason he came to Jerusalem was to bring gifts to the poor and to present offerings in the temple. And in verse 18, he goes on to say that this is exactly what he was doing. That when his accusers found them in the temple, that's what he was doing. 
He was on the seventh day of a Jewish purification ceremony presenting offerings in the temple. Basically, he was doing the opposite of what they were accusing him of. He goes on to say that actually the people who charged him with defiling the temple itself were some of the Asian Jews who didn't even have the courage to come and stand in this place and bring the charges against them themselves because they didn't have any proof. And he ends with a couple zingers in verses 20 and 21. He says, first thing he says is that his present accusers should present their evidence against him. And he says that because he knows they don't have any. And then he says they should talk about their trial in Jerusalem when he stood before them, which of course ended in a riot between the members of the Sanhedrin. And they're trying to bury that lead because they don't want Felix to know that the riot that came up was their fault, not Paul's. So what Paul's saying in 20 and 21 is, you should have them present all of their evidence to you, Felix, knowing that they don't have any. And then the second zinger he says is, you should ask them about that riot, how it got started, who started it, where it came from. Go ahead, ask them about that. These are one of those moments where I see the humanity of Paul, and I love it. So I believe in the Jewish law and the prophets. They're the ones who don't believe it, basically what he's saying. So Paul has pretty easily and very clearly acquitted himself of all of his charges. But the decision should have been made easy for Felix. It should have been very clear cut. He had all the stuff in front of him. But look at his response in verse 22. Look at Felix's response. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. When Lysias the commander comes, I will decide your case. But we have no evidence, we have no record that Lysias was ever even sent for. In the meantime, Felix held Paul as a quasi-prisoner. And in verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul and Felix would sit, and, and, and uh, Paul and Felix and Felix's wife, Drusilla, would sit and listen to Paul and listen to his message. So no doubt Paul was witnessing to the best of his ability, hoping the, to lead Felix to an understanding of who Jesus is. In verse 25, we see something. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. So we, we actually see Felix be convicted here. At least it's, it comes across that way, that the gospel is starting to penetrate this man's cold heart but he wouldn't make a decision. Just like he wasn't willing to make a decision about Paul, these Roman governors tend to all come out of the same mold. Pilate was the same. He was afraid to make a decision on Jesus because he wanted to keep everybody happy. And that seemed like killing Jesus was the best option that he had afforded to him. Felix wanted to keep everybody happy, so the best thing he could do was just keep Paul locked up in prison. So, it says that in verse 25 that he was afraid and he commanded Paul to leave him for a moment, but he wouldn't make that decision. And, uh, and so he, in verse 26, it says this, at the same time he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. It tells us that he met with Paul often, hoping that Paul would offer him some kind of bribe to get out of prison. But in spite of all of those occasions, Paul just kept sharing with him he never submitted to Jesus. Felix was more focused on the things of this world than the things that had eternal value. Verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And that's where the real lesson comes in today. That's where the real meat of this comes in. It's important for us to read through these stories, and I'll be honest with you, I agonized over this. This week I was reading through these passages and just trying to see, God, what, is, what's, what do we need to learn from this? Sometimes you can read one verse from Scripture and you can say, wow, okay, that's, that's very convicting. And sometimes you read an interaction like this and it can go several directions, and, and I was really praying for wisdom about what God had in store, and this is what I was led to see 
Felix had lots of opportunities to receive God's grace. He had lots of opportunities to receive forgiveness and salvation. It was served up to him on a royal platter, but he put it off. He focused on his possessions. He focused on people-pleasing, things that are here today and gone tomorrow, rather than thinking and processing through these eternal riches that won't ever fade away. And I just saw it to be very sad and tragic. It really comes down to something. There was this man in prison who was preaching the gospel and teaching people about Jesus, and not just teaching, but but living it out. And Paul had several opportunities to get himself out of this, and Felix seems to be like serving up these opportunities to him on a golden platter, hoping that Paul would just be like, hey, dude, if my friends drop off like like 5,000 bones, will you just let me out of here? Felix is sort of serving that up to him, the opportunity for him to bribe his way out of the situation. But Paul doesn't do it. Paul just keeps coming out when he's summoned and preaching the gospel and answering the questions that Felix and Drusilla have. So it really came down to me as a question of lordship. Lordship. Like, who who is Paul serving in this moment? And what, what possesses him to have that level of commitment to it? Paul's whole story is riddled with this question. What drives a man to make that radical of decisions about his future and hold to it at all costs? What drives a man to do that? And in fast contrast to that, what drives Felix to make the decisions he's making and why he's making them. Here's a guy that by worldly standards has risen up the ranks pretty far. He lives in a palace built by King Herod called the Praetorium. He has everything he wants at his disposal and yet something is gnawing at him to the point where he just keeps having these conversations with Paul. And then at least on one occasion, we see him say, okay, Paul, Go away. I can't hear this anymore. And when I'm ready to hear you again, I will summon for you. Basically telling Paul, okay, enough. This is starting to make me feel uncomfortable. And until I can squash this feeling, I don't want to hear from you anymore. What drives a man to make those kind of decisions at the end when it says, it tells us something about this man's character, by the way, in that last verse in chapter 24, when it says that he he was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, what does he do? Keeps Paul locked up. He keeps him locked up. Why would he do that? Because he felt like that was the thing that made the people he wanted to make happy, happy. He's a people pleaser. So I'll go back to what Paul's life looks like. This is the thing that was gnawing at me. And it comes back to our passage we read as a call to worship. In Romans 10, I'm just going to read Romans 10, 9, and 10. I want to read it again. I want to explain it from Paul's point of view when he's speaking it so that it can make a little bit more sense to us. Because, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now we can look at that. You can leave that up. Thank you. We can look at that and we can sort of get numb to it because we've heard it so many times. That if we, if we confess with our mouth... And we believe in our heart, we're saved, and it's true. But the context that Paul's writing this in, it's it's bigger than that. If in Paul's day you claimed that anything or anyone was your Lord other than the emperor, you were immediately put to death, period. And if you were given a chance, it was just basically picture, it's not a firing squad, but Picture that in your mind, essentially a firing squad. You are up against death. 
And at one point in Roman history, you would be asked three times, who is your Lord? Is the Lord your emperor? No, my Lord is God. Is the Lord your emperor? No, my Lord is God. Is the Lord your emperor? No, my Lord is God. If you held two or three times, you would be put to death. The thought being that if you're staring down death and you still say the thing that's going to lead to your death, that obviously is your Lord. You're not going to back down. And then you'd be put to death. So what Paul's saying is that to the people in Rome, to the church in Rome at the time, in Rome, the city where Caesar lives, this isn't an outlying city like Caesarea where Felix is in charge. This is the actual city where Paul's writing a letter to the church in Rome and saying that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But not just saved eternally. That's how we interpret it. He's saying that your life here on earth doesn't count near as much as your eternal life with God. And even if your life here is taken by a tyrannical emperor who's on a power trip and wants to be the Lord, you will not lose anything. You'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses, and what? Is saved. But what that means also, that if in your heart you believe this, in Paul's context, and you confess it with your mouth, you believe in your heart, you confess it with your mouth, he's saying you are saved at the exact time that by confessing it with your mouth, you're most likely going to be put to death. Let that sink in. Because I want to go back to something Jesus says, and it's this. In Luke 14, he says, now, the the story tells us, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them. Jesus has a big crowd following him, and he turns, and this is what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, why would Jesus, with a crowd following him, that's, that's what every leader wants, right? You want the big crowd. Jesus has his crowd. But his words prove that that's not really what he's interested in. He's not interested in being popular. He's not interested in making everyone happy in the sense that they're defining happy. He wants to give them something bigger than that. And so he penetrates straight to their deepest idols. He penetrates straight to their deepest idols when he says that if you don't love me more than you love your own wife, your own children, your own family. If anyone comes to me and any earthly relationship is of more importance than the relationship you have with me, if I am not your Lord, is what he's saying, then you are not worthy of being my disciple. In Luke 16, Jesus says, No servant can serve masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or mammon, which is just overall earthly wealth. It can be defined financially. It can be defined through relationship and belongings. This is a continuation of Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels when he says that you cannot... The reason that if you don't love God and his, He is your Lord above all other earthly relationships, then you will learn to either love one and despise the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve a heavenly God and an earthly master. You cannot have God as your Savior and things of this earth as your Lord. But that's how we want it. That's how Felix wanted it. 
Felix wanted to figure out how he could get what Paul was talking about without having to give up anything. It's what's referred to now as cheap grace. And what I'm about to say might be offensive to some, so I'll preface with that. But the Billy Graham crusade era entered in what was called, what is now called easy believism. It's not Billy Graham's fault. But Billy Graham would come and speak to thousands of people and say, all you have to do to love Jesus and have an eternal destiny with Jesus is walk forward while we play 17 verses of Just As I Am. And if you did that, that's all it took. And it was selling a form of what happened over time is it got sold, churches latched onto this, and we sold a cheap form of grace. And we allowed people to believe that they could have Jesus as their Savior, but didn't have to have Him as their Lord. That, that you, could, you could be saved from an eternity headed towards hell and still have all the cool things on earth that you really want. Because Jesus wants to save you, and that's true. But Jesus didn't die on the cross to just redeem you of your sins. He came to be your Lord. That sounds like it could be bad news. It sounds harsh. It sounds like that that God just wants to lord over us and control us. But there's nothing about the heart and character of God that says that's true. It's the same thing as the accusations that come across Paul. And Paul just stands there and basically says, these charges are ridiculous. Watch my life. Look at the body of evidence and tell me if these charges are true. You can't because they're not. And that's essentially the same thing. When someone says that God is a harsh God, uh, lording over God, a controlling God, a mean God, a mean-spirited God, an angry God, and that's what He is, He doesn't have my best interest in mind. If those kind of charges are made against God, God stands firm yesterday, today, and forever and says, look at the body of evidence and know that's not true. That is not true. I want to be your Savior and your Lord because my interests for you are good. And in this world, chock full of sin, you will have trouble, but take heart. Me, as your Savior and Lord, I have overcome the world. The world you still have to live in until I come to redeem it. I am your Lord. I am your Master. I am your Savior. I have given you a better way. Trust me with that. And what's happened over the centuries and the ages is that we have decided that we want to trust Jesus for our salvation, but we don't want to trust Jesus with our lives. So we come up with all kinds of reasons why we don't have to obey. We come up with a litany of excuses. No, you don't know my past. You don't know my baggage. You don't know what I'm up against. You don't see it. Yes, I don't. You're right. But a saving and loving and gracious God knew about that when he died on the cross. And he said, my way is better. The cross was done in love. To take Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord, is cheap grace. And it's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. You cannot live a life like Paul models without Jesus being your Lord, your Savior and your Lord. Jesus saved Paul from several situations, but Paul stood firm on ground that he knew had been planted under his feet by his Lord. And when his Lord said go, he went. And when his Lord said speak, he spoke. And when his Lord said go, he went. And when his Lord said stay, he stayed. He was driven by something much bigger than any goals, any, any mission, anything this world can afford us. Because Jesus promised, in this world you will have trouble. Take heart, I have overcome the world. So if you want me as your Savior, but not your Lord, you are walking in trouble all the time. That I have already overcome. 
But you don't want me to be your Lord. You want a cheap grace. And that's not what this is. And so my prayer became over and over and over again as I'm flying over the United States yesterday. Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We talked about this last week. I'll bring it up again. At one point in your life, you were willing to not just receive salvation, but in that moment, you were willing to give God your life. He was your Lord and your Savior. And maybe over time, that isn't true of you anymore. Because when David prays this prayer in Psalm 51, it's not true of him in that moment. What does he do? He doesn't realize that he's lost his salvation. He doesn't think that God has abandoned him. He knows that the issue isn't God at all. It's him. That he's allowed his lordship to drift into something else. And he says, re-centered, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. See, Jesus being our Lord is good, church. It is good news. It's better than what we stand against and swear our allegiance to here on this earth. Every day you wake up and swear your allegiance to something. Your life dictates it. But the good news for us is that it's not, it, our lives don't need to be driven by fear. It, they don't need to be driven by shame. And our lives don't need to be driven by other people's expectations. That's Felix's life. And I'm sure if you, do you read through the story of Felix and find yourself wishing you were more like him? Anyone? Then don't sit here and be like him. And don't walk out of here and be like him. He wanted cheap grace. The admonishment in Scripture is this story is here for a reason. That the guy who was submitted to the Lordship of Christ had a crappier existence from an earthly stance. He lived in the dungeon of the palace. He got fed when someone else fed him. He was able to have visitors and send letters. But from an earthly standpoint, Paul's life looked crappy. Whose life from an earthly standpoint looked better? Felix's did. He lived in a palace. He had anything he wanted at his disposal. And in one little verse, we see him be miserable when he's confronted with the truth of the gospel. You see, lordship to Jesus won't always look like success on this earth. Paul might not have been seen as, he's not really seen as a success outside of the church. He's seen as an inspiration. You see, my desire for God to be my Lord cannot be driven by fear. It cannot be driven by shame. It cannot be driven by excuses. It cannot be driven by any other person's expectations of me. I need to keep it together because I don't want to be the black sheep in my family kind of thing. It cannot be driven by that. It has to be driven by the kindness of a loving Savior who gave himself up on your behalf and says that your, your life is worth his sacrifice, that it costs you nothing and it costs him everything. He saved us from the tyrannical world of sin. He saved us from that. And when we see his grace swallow up us, it shows us that he's not just worthy of my worship, he's not just worthy of my time every once in a while. He gets everything. He gets it all. And at the end, I lose nothing. And I became a rightful heir to the riches of eternity as a full-blown son of God. And the riches of heaven are my inheritance because my Lord mandates it so. 
And if I know that's my future, then I want to follow his roadmap, just like Paul did. God, forgive us for being like Felix far too often. Lord, I pray that you won't allow us to nod our heads and agree with something and then walk out and continue to eat slop. Continue to live as a a second-rate someone who's pretending to be committed to something we're not really committed to. That we're looking for an easy way to follow you. We're looking for the path of least resistance. That is not promised to us. What is promised to us is that you gave us your all. You gave it all for us. And it's good news. It's such good news. There's nothing in this world that can satisfy us. That you, you blatantly told us we can't serve two masters. That, that, that you are worthy of our submission. So may that desire to pursue you, to not just be saved by you, but to have you be our Lord, may that be driven by the good news of the gospel, the the realization that we are rightful heirs to your kingdom. We are adopted as sons in your court, that we are clothed in your son's righteousness. And when you see us, you see your son. And may we submit to that with joy. May you give us perseverance when things don't seem to go our way. And may when things get hard, we want what you want. And we make hard choices because we want to look more like you than we want to look like anything this world has to offer. God, you are worthy of that and so much more. So may you get our best. May this community right here around Journey Church where the the people that are gathered in this place go back to and eat and work and live and sleep and the people they come in contact with, may they start to see a marked difference in our culture because you, you are our Lord. May our allegiance be solely given to the only one worthy of it. 